Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Where to begin? My guest today is one heavy hitter. Dr. Catherine Anthony is Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture Distinguished Professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and as such, is its longest-serving female faculty member. She's the first woman to have served as chair of the design program faculty and as chair of the Building Research Council. Her list of awards is extensive. Among them, the American Institute of Architects, the Environmental Design Research Association, the Lifetime Achievement Award from Chicago Women in Architecture. Catherine's written for numerous publications, and she's also authored five books, including Designing for Diversity, Gender, Race, and Ethnicity in the Architectural Profession. Speaking of diversity, she developed a seminar on gender and race in contemporary architecture, as well as social and behavioral factors in design. Catherine served as a national spokesperson on gender issues in design and has appeared on network television, national public radio, and featured in numerous publications. In 2010, along with the former mayor of D.C. and two members of Congress, Catherine was the only private citizen to testify before the House in support of H.R. 4869, the Bipartisan Restroom Gender Parity in Federal Buildings Act. She's also the vice president of the American Restroom Association. COVID-19 has forced experts to rethink the designs of public spaces, which obviously includes the most private of those public spaces. She's also lectured all over the world on designing for diversity. Catherine received a PhD in architecture and a bachelor's in psychology from the University of California, Berkeley. So let's meet and get to know this powerhouse, Dr. Catherine Anthony. Welcome and thank you so much for joining me remotely today. And thank you very much, Sandy. That's quite a nice introduction that you gave me. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your show. So, architecture professor, researcher, author, design critic, lecturer, not on that list is architect, which begs the question, huh? I never really wanted to be an architect, a practicing architect. But what I do is teach people who become practicing architects. So to me, that's a very important role. So I write about architecture, I teach about architecture, I'm a design critic, and I'm an advocate for high quality design and architecture that is good for people and different kinds of people and sensitive to different kinds of people who use buildings. So that's my thing, that's my stick. Well, where did that come from? When you were growing up, I'm sure that was not maybe one of the options that you had in your head. Well, believe it or not, it was. Really? My dad was a professor uh, of city planning. Ah. So he actually taught at Columbia University for many years, uh, and that's why we lived in New Jersey, why I grew up there before our family moved to California. And so uh, he was head of the Division of Urban Planning at Columbia University, and he also had a background in architecture. So I grew up being very much exposed to the value of architecture and good design. We took a number of trips when I was a little girl to Europe to travel around and go to places that he was at the time taking slides of for his students and for his classes. And so uh, I was exposed to it at a pretty young age. And I think that in all honesty, I probably would not have gone into this field if I hadn't had that experience. So he was really a powerful driving force for you. 
He was. And I must say, I've seen that with a fair number of women in architecture, certainly not all. Many people have gone into the field who had absolutely no connection with it before. But uh, for many people, there's somebody in the family who was an architect, a dad, a grandfather, an uncle, someone like that, that, uh, they, that exposed them to the field at a young age and made them think, well, hmm, this would be an interesting field to go into myself. So let's get political for a second. How welcoming is the field of architecture for women? (laughs) Well, I've written a lot about that. So I would say it's evolved and it's much more welcoming now today than it had been in the past. And so the answer is not a simple one. The answer is a very complex one. So today, I think women have a very good chance of succeeding in the field. And many women have done very well as architects. It's a field that has a lot of opportunities and a lot of, uh, what should I say, the work is extremely rewarding for women in architecture who do very well. It's a field like no other, a profession like no other, to be able to see their work built and impacted and and to walk by it and and get compliments on it and, and realize that what you've done and what you've designed changes people's lives and changes them for the better in a very, very dramatic way. So it's, it's, it's a field that has its own charisma and charm and magnetism, and that's what draws people to it. So to get back to your question, in the olden days, it was not very welcoming for women. And I've written a lot about that in my book, Designing for Diversity. So a lot of women really struggled to succeed in this field and uh, were not treated fairly. And some, it actually drove some people out of the field altogether. They didn't pursue architecture. They may have studied it in school, but then decided not to go into it. Or they went into the profession and then they saw others, what we say, leapfrog ahead of them. As in males. As in males with fewer qualifications (laughs) and less experience, but they were promoted and advanced in the field in ways that they were, that the women were not. And so that has been a problem, was a huge problem for women in architecture for a long time. Not to say that that still doesn't happen, but I think it happens a lot less now. And we've had, uh, one of the things I'd like to say too is that you mentioned about Chicago Women in Architecture. I'll be receiving an award from them That is a group that's been around for almost 50 years. I believe it was founded in 1974, I think. And uh, there are groups like that, professional organizations, networks of women architects around the country. So New York has one, San Francisco has one. There's a national group uh, within the American Institute of Architects as well, who advocate for women and for diversity in design. So the professional networks have been extremely helpful in succeeding to help advance the causes of women in architecture and help make sure that they are treated fairly, that their work is well known and appreciated and valued. So Chicago Women in Architecture is one of the most successful of these organizations. They have hosted a number of exhibits over the years. They hosted one called That Exceptional One, which discussed the history of women in architecture and some of the first women to go into the field. And uh, they hosted a very interesting set of exhibits that have been held at the Chicago Architecture, it was then called the Chicago Architecture Foundation, now called Chicago Architecture Center. And they hosted wonderful exhibits about the work of women in architecture. They've published documents about their uh, history and about the various work that their members have done. So 
It's really important. I'll also say in New York, I believe in connection with the AIA convention that was held there a couple of years ago, an architect named Beverly Willis has been very active in promoting the causes of women. And she put a, a document together, including a map called Built by Women. And it highlights the works of architecture that women architects have done around the city. Uh, she also put something similar to, together about the architects in L.A., women architects in L.A. The AIA, the American Institute of Architects National Convention, was to have taken place here in L.A. this last spring. But uh, because of COVID-19, things have been delayed a bit. Life got in, in the way. Yeah. As you can imagine, yes. But in any case, these kind of documentations are really, really important in helping real, people realize the contributions that women have made. But I want to go back in the past. I want you to tell me what your experience was like at Berkeley when you were majoring in architecture. Were you an anomaly? When I was a student, believe it or not, I was not all that aware of problems that women were to have in the profession. What year was that, Catherine? I was at Berkeley, let's see. So I was an undergraduate there. I I was a transfer student. I transferred from University of California, San Diego. So I was an undergraduate student there from 1974 to 1976. Okay. Then in 1976 to 1981 is when I pursued my doctoral studies in architecture. Okay. So that dates it, you know, it's been a while. (laughs) But believe it or not, uh, I did have a number of professors who were female who were very much mentors for me. And uh, they were very successful in their field. They had gotten the jobs at Berkeley. They'd been there a number of years. They were widely published. They were well known in their profession. So I didn't really think so much about problems that women would have in the field until afterwards, after I finished, actually. But uh, two of the women that were very influential for me at the time, I would like to call attention to, one, her name is Claire Cooper Marcus, and the other is Galen Kranz. And Claire Cooper Marcus has written a variety of books uh, about the house of mirror of self, for example, how spaces and places influence us in ways that we don't always realize, and how our homes are a reflection of ourselves and what inner relationships we often have with our homes that we don't realize. She was definitely one of my main mentors in the field and was involved in my uh, doctoral committee. And then Galen has written a number of books as well. She wrote a book about the politics of park design, and she's also written a book about the chair, body, culture, and design. So she's written on different <laughs> scales, so uh-huh. big scales and small scales. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, those two women in particular were very, very helpful to me at the time going through school. So uh, I saw them as leading figures in the field. They already, I believe, had tenure when I was working with them. And so I didn't see them as people who had trouble. In terms of the students, there were a fair number of female students too at that time. Where I really became more aware of the problems for women in the field is when I first started working in in an architectural office uh, and then also when I first started teaching at an architectural school. That's when the gender issues and the lack of, what should I say, the problems that women had in the field hit me in the face. And so that obviously resonated with you. And on some level, if I can put words in your mouth, you couldn't not but pursue gender and diversity in this field. (laughs) Yes. Well, for example, 
at a firm that I worked at uh, in the Bay Area. I won't say much more than that to not give them away, but <laughs> there was a very, very, very volatile boss uh, and a very sexist boss. And one day in the office, it was a large office, many employees. One day, one of my female colleagues and I went to his office and complained because the office was too cold. They hadn't turned the heat on. It was the winter time. We think California is warm. Well, it's not always warm. And if you don't have the heat on in the winter, it can be pretty chilly. Hello. So we went to complain <laughs> to the boss and we said, no, we're sorry, but would you be able to turn the heat up? Because we had our winter jackets on and it was hard to work with all those uh, all that heavy clothing. Anyway, he whips up the phone, he picks up right away and he calls so-and-so and he said, you know, hey, Joe, I want my broads to take off more clothes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we heard that and that was back in, you know, what, 40 years ago about? Uh, what do you do? Okay. Today, he would be called on all sorts of things. Me too, this and that, because that wasn't the worst of what he would have done, but that was one thing. What did we do? We both looked at each other, kind of raised our eyebrows and scurried back to our cubicles. And yes, he did turn the heat up. So that was how you, how you dealt with things like that back then, or some of us did. <laughs> we uh. just were lucky to have the jobs. But let's say that that incident stuck with me quite a bit. So that was one that, that definitely hit me in the face. And in a typical architect's office at that time, there were women professionals. There were women architects who were working, no question. But typically you would see, rather than focusing on the women architects in the studio, what was often more noticeable was maybe a very, very nice-looking, award-winning, in terms of looks, physical appearance, receptionist at the front desk. That's what you would often see <laughs> mm -hmm, in an architect's mm -hmm. office. Mm -hmm. So I think people were often selected. Obviously, they had to be good at the job, otherwise they wouldn't get picked, but I think in terms of rating people on a scale of one to 10, they were off and off the charts. And I saw that at a number of architects' offices. So that was the first point of entry to an architect's office and the first person that people would see. And that's often the woman who stood out in the architect's office that you would see first, rather than the women architects. So there weren't that many of them. <laughs> How fulfilling were your jobs? And did you get to do what it was you wanted to do? And did you know what that was? I started out uh, working in a couple different offices in architecture and planning, and I enjoyed the work that I did, but I also felt that at the time, the opportunities were somewhat limited for me, especially as a person who was ready to complete my doctorate degree. And I will say that episode that I had, it wasn't the only thing that happened with that particular uh, supervisor, <laughs> but I decided that I would become more effective at what I wanted to do as a teacher, as a faculty member, than as a person in an architectural office. Now, that might not have been the case today. I know a lot of people who've done quite well as architects. And again, as I mentioned, I'm not a practicing architect, but what I was trained to do and what I had hoped to do would be to work in an architect's office to help advise designers about ways in which to design places and spaces that would be successful for the average everyday person using them. 
And so not necessarily to think just solely about the clients who are paying the bills, but different kinds of users. So that's what I originally wanted to do in an architect's office themselves. Now, early on in my career, I realized I could be much more effective as an educator doing that and to have the chance to influence a new generation of students who would go out there and become practicing architects and also to write about these issues. So that's the path that I chose soon after I had that experience at the office. Uh, but as I say, most of my students, the vast majority of my students have become practicing architects. And I think that they have benefited from that exposure to the particular field that I'm an expert in, which is called environment and behavior. So how spaces and places affect people and how to design with people in mind. So again, I, I think I've been perhaps much more effective to be a teacher and a professor. And I've had now... I don't know how many students, at least 1,500, maybe 2,000 students have crossed my path. It depends how you count them. But all those people who, who I had the pleasure to meet over so many years and just about 40 years of teaching now, I think they remember, some of them at least, what they learned in my classes and that it's influenced them as designers. Yeah, that's terrific. So in terms of space and What's user-friendly? It goes beyond, quote, office buildings. It's museums. It's railway stations. There's so much that maybe we don't even realize that's out there that you have an impact on. Every space that's designed, somebody thought about it, and somebody thought, okay, here's how people are going to enter. Here's how they're going to exit. Here's how they're going to circulate. Here's how they're going to congregate. Here's how they're going to find the The exit, the fire exit, if some disaster happens, if they have to get out really fast, uh, the means of egress, if they want to meet each other, this is what's going to happen. So designers speculate about how they believe people will behave in buildings, but they don't always really know. Nobody really knows until the place is actually built and occupied. But what we try to do in my field is to help designers think about, well, they may not all interact in the way that you expect. And we often, what should I say, we're looking for red flags in the design. So one of the things that I do uh, regularly as part of my job, I am a design critic in the design studio for the courses of my colleagues. And I see the designs that students present. And I, along with other colleagues and visiting practitioners, we will look at the students' plans, at their drawings, at their models, at their perspective renderings and so on and say, wait a minute. I don't think this is going to work and here's why. And here's what you need to watch out for. And you made a mistake here and let's fix it before you go on and so on. So we call attention to potential problems before they occur when they're in school. Now, the average everyday building that's already built, it's too late <laughs> to yeah, find some of yeah. these things. But, but I will say, yes, every single space that you interact in on a daily basis, somebody designed it and someone either did a very good job or they may have done a very poor job. And the key is how well or how poorly did they think about the people who are going to be occupying the building. So let me just also say, too, while we're here, I'd like to make a plug for one of the organizations that I have been involved in for many years, and it's called the Environmental Design Research Association, EDRA, E-D-R-A. 
just last year, Edra celebrated its 50th anniversary, its golden anniversary. And I have been a regular member of Edra for a very long time since I was a graduate student. Last year, the big convention was held in New York City, in Brooklyn. And it was a wonderful event uh, to celebrate the anniversary. And what's that group been doing? Uh, We have, as members of Edra, architects, planners, landscape architects, designers, graphic designers, um, interior designers, industrial designers on the one hand, so people from the design community. And then we have psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, and so on on the other hand. And we get together and we talk and we work together on projects and discuss the, the work that we do. So the field has had a very large impact and a great deal of scholarship has come out from EDRA members over a series of 50 years that has been intended to help enlighten the design community and the general public about designing spaces and places that work better for people. That's very cool. You know what struck me? because I know nothing about this field, can an architect cross boundaries? As in, if you're designing the Sydney Opera House, are you also designing the Empire State Building? <laughs> well, it depends on the kind of uh, kind of practice that you run. Well, that would be every architect's dream to design those two buildings. They'd have it made for the rest of their career. <laughs> <laughs> so it varies. I mean, there's there are architects who specialize in particular kinds of work. Uh, so you may have, say, architects who specialize in designing educational facilities. So they may design K through 12. They may design facilities for colleges and universities. It really varies. But then you may also have, uh, that's just one example that you may have. You may have others who specialize in commercial facilities or Mm -hmm. in residential or in high-rise or multifamily housing or various things. But often the bigger the office, the more varied the specializations. And so you could have a firm that does both those kind of buildings at the same time. So some of the very large Uh, offices that we have in the United States, for example, say a firm like Skidmore Owings and Merrill or Gensler, we would have a variety of buildings, uh, building types that would be done uh, and building scales that would be done by the same architectural firm. So it really depends on what type of clients come their way and what areas in which they specialize. And, And typically in an architectural firm too, the architects and designers develop an expertise in a particular building type, and then they're likely to get repeat clients and repeat business in that same building type because people have seen examples that they have done in other places, and they'll say, well, I saw your project that you did in such and such a city, right, and, right. I, and I really liked it, and, and we would like to consider your firm for this particular project. It must be really fascinating for you over the course of your career to see, I'm not using the term how far we've come, I don't mean that, but in terms of office space, how we've moved from the cubicle to something like Google, which is just out there, man. And it's a whole other ball game. It must be fascinating for you. Yes, it is. In fact, I teach a course on entrepreneurship in design 
And I've taught that one for several years, a new course that I developed a number of years ago. And one of the things that we always do as part of that class is we've gone to visit Google headquarters in Chicago. So it's been very interesting and an eye-opening experience for the class to see how the Googlers have worked and uh, the innovative workspaces that they have in Google. And one of the reasons why we go there is because one of my particular areas of interest is about hidden gender, age, and body bias in everyday products and places, which is the subject of my book, Defined by Design. And at a place like Google, the office designers have been very attentive to those biases. And the offices are very, very well designed uh, for a variety of users. And there's beautiful spaces that Googlers can go to to relax, to recharge themselves, to become more comfortable on the job, to collaborate, uh, to not stay stuck in cubicles and in areas where they're boxed in. So uh, the trip to Google that we always take every year has always been one of the highlights of the year for me and the highlights of my class. Fortunately, the trip we took this year was in February of 2020. Oh, you just got it in. We just got it in. <laughs> we actually visited there and we visited the new uh, Facebook headquarters, also atop a high rise in Chicago on that day. So the impact of COVID-19 on both those places now is huge. Yeah, absolutely huge. Yes. I want to move into the diversity area. Where did that come from for you? I mean, I know we talked about the experience at the first architectural firm, but this seminar that you developed on gender and race, I'm assuming the average Joe or Jane hasn't really thought about that when it comes to spaces, race and gender. That's really interesting. So where did it come from? Or Yeah, where and what's going on with that? <laughs> okay, well, I'll say there's been an evolution in my, my, my thinking over the years. And I've always been interested in, again, how spaces and places affect people and how they affect different kinds of people. And in uh, my book, Designing for Diversity, I write about the history of underrepresented people in architecture. So say African-Americans, Latinx, uh, Asian-Americans, and uh, people of color in general in architecture and women. And so I focus on underrepresented persons in the field and how they, what obstacles and opportunities they had in the profession. And then in my later book, Defined by Design, the surprising power of hidden gender, age, and body bias in everyday products and places. In that book, I look particularly at the gender, age, and body bias issues in in how we experience everyday places. So I looked at us as consumers of the built environment. So I've looked in different stages of my career. I guess I've always had kind of a holistic interest, but earlier in my career, I guess I was looking at, at women, persons of color, diversity in as being the producers of the built environment, at least in that particular book. And in this later book, looking at us as consumers. So I shouldn't say my interests have changed. They've always been, <laughs> they've always been holistic. I've always had all those interests, I would say. But the two books focused a little bit in, in different ways. So how might you be aware of some of these things, just as an example? And this might be, let's see. Well, when you get into an airplane, for example, which we're not doing these days, but when you notice how people deal with 
being in the airplane or did do with it in the past. So usually people had their hand luggage. They would put it up on top uh, in the bin overhead compartment, and then they would go to their seat. Well, taller men often bang their heads on the uh, overhead compartment. Happened to my husband all the time. (laughs) I bet. I bet. How tall was he, Sandy? Six, three and a half. Well, okay, so... And my sons are tall also. And your sons are tall also, okay. So put them in a small commuter plane, and the problem was exacerbated, okay? Very little space in that overhead compartment, but the overhead compartment's a lot lower. Anyway, the tall person would have that problem. The tall person would have a problem sitting in the seat comfortably without banging their knees and trying to hang over into the aisle. Not only there, but I love the theater, okay? And let me tell you... It was torture (laughs) for us to take our kids. My husband humored me, and usually we would try to get an aisle seat, but my kids despise Broadway because they were so physically miserable. When we think of social distancing now and all that's going on, (laughs) those are two places that we clearly cannot socially distance in the ways that are appropriate. And I think that they, the tendency to try to pack so many people in a small amount of space is something that we'll always be questioning ever from now on. But if you look again, okay, so the tall person has some trouble uh, in the airplane, no question. And, and, and there's probably more tall people than shorter people in general who had that problem. But then you get shorter people, not just kids, but shorter people who tend to be female, and uh, they couldn't reach to put their things in the overhead compartment. And so they'd often have to ask for help from somebody or they try to do it themselves and they wreck their back in trying to do so or they'd have to put their suitcase on their head, their carrier, luggage, whatever. But you become dependent on someone else. So that's just an example of, of what I call defined by design that really, there's nothing wrong with us, but the problem is the way that the place and the space has been designed that disadvantages one group over another. It advantages some people and it disadvantages others. So what's the case in theaters? Again, if you look at the Broadway theaters, many of which are, are quite a bit older, and I've been to a number of them myself, the seats are crammed in, and a lot of times you have very little space in between the rows. So when somebody comes in, and again, usually it's the person in the middle of the row who comes in last, right? Of course, of course. Everybody That's has to get up given. and leave room for them to come around. Okay, so tight squeeze, tight spaces, uh, and and uncomfortable. Many of the theaters didn't have much of an incline. So again, somebody on the shorter side would have a hard time seeing over people. So one thing I remember, uh, again, I'm grateful to my parents who were attentive to my issues. I was always one of the shorter people in the class, (laughs) shorter girls in the class, and still am one of the shorter girls (laughs) in the class. I'm 5'2", pushing it. May not be totally five two anymore, but your secret's but, safe with us, Catherine. Secret's safe with you. Yes, <laughs> on the podcast, it's totally secret. Nobody knows how tall I am now. <laughs> but one of the things my dad used to do when they took us to go see plays in New York City, this was very clever. I, I, I'm very grateful to him. He had a little pillow, inflatable pillow that he carried around with him. He or my mom, I'm sure, carried him in a bag, whatever. And so I would get to my seat at the show. I couldn't see a thing. Too short, right? You get somebody tall in front of you, that's it. So all of a sudden, they blow up the pillow and I go from being this high to this high. And then all of a sudden, I could see better. Wasn't that a nice idea? So both my parents, I think, came to my rescue <laughs> to be able to be able to see. But so many places you can't, it's just very difficult. So well, in the theater, in Broadway, and I know this to be a fact, it's about money. 
get as many seats as you can in that you're putting on a musical that costs big bucks. So you just got to cram us in there. And so hats off to you and what you do, but it's almost moot. We need to have as many seats. And I'm assuming that that's the case in the airplanes too. Yes, it is. Pack them in because that's what makes money and uh, empty spaces do not make money. So that's, that's what's happened. But um, it is an issue in a lot of places. I will get back to the theater example. Have you ever noticed, and I bet you have, that there's a line usually for one set of people, but not for another during the intermission? So, And that was my next, oh my God, that <laughs> is unmitigated torture. Exactly. Well, that's a clear example of a gender bias in design. So you have these theaters that were designed many, many years ago, and uh, there's not enough toilet facilities. So usually for the men, they can get in and out like a flash, but for women, we're stuck waiting in long lines, and you often miss a good deal of what's going on. The entire intermission, you're stuck waiting before you can get into the bathroom. Unbelievable. You know, and and it's not fair. So you see that in theaters, you see it in in airports a lot of times, right before a plane leaves or as a plane uh, disembarks, everybody gets out to go to the bathroom right away and there's a line at the ladies' room and not for the men. So this issue of uh, gender bias can be very clearly seen in restrooms, in sports facilities, at games. Again, a lot of times women and girls spend the entire half time waiting in line to go to the bathroom while their male counterparts don't have that issue. So those are some of the problems that we see out there and we've been working on them. They're getting better. We're seeing more and more family-friendly restrooms. We're seeing more gender-neutral restrooms. Uh, We're seeing building codes being changed and improved every time there's a new iteration of building codes. But nonetheless, the bulk of the public infrastructure that's out there remains unchanged. Only if a building is remodeled or built from scratch do you see restrooms built according to the new criteria and the new codes. If they're not being changed, the old ones remain. So that's what you see typically at the Broadway. So would you say that the most egregious issue is potty parity? Well, I think that's one of them. And that, that's, that's the one that we can probably connect with the most easily because it affects us. We've all, we've all been through it. And even the men have been through it waiting for us. So it's not oh, like- too bad. Happen, right? They've got to <laughs> yeah. wait. So, <laughs> yeah, but, it's not the same as, but it's not the same as when you really have to go. It's a very, very unpleasant feeling again. And people with children too, who have to run to the bathroom right away. And sometimes people with invisible disabilities, there are all sorts of people who have reasons why when they need to use the restroom, they need it right away. And waiting in a line is very harmful for them. So that's, that's one, one of the most egregious examples. Another one that I'll point out, and it's not really a gender bias, but I think it's, it's something that takes place in everyday objects that I think people, your listeners could probably connect with. And that's something that we call clamshell packaging. So here is an issue that's not necessarily a gender bias, but it's, um, it's got to do with your body, your strength, and your, um, your manual dexterity, and anyway, it can affect all sorts of people. But um, hard shell packaging is something that 
is uh, surrounds, say, oftentimes you'll go buy like a new, um, say, an electric toothbrush or batteries or something that comes from a store. It's often from a big box store and it's been packed in a very secure way so nobody can can steal it. And anyway, those hard clamshell packaging can be very, very difficult for people. And one of the things I talk about in my book that's been fascinating to find out, a sad fact, in one year alone, there were about 6,000 emergency room visits over people who were injured trying to open clamshell packaging. A lot of children's toys are in packages that are very, very hard to open. Okay. So in order to open them, you need a knife, you need scissors, you right. need to stab them in some way. Right, right. And when you do that, guess what? Sometimes you end up being the victim of the per- of being stabbed <laughs> rather than... The or damaging the goods too. Or you damage what's inside. That's absolutely right. So that to me has also been a big problem. And as I read in my book, Defined by Design, one of the things that I did was I... I listened to a lot of people over a period of about 10 years, and I asked people, again, through my classes, my students, people that they knew, but the whole project kind of mushroomed, and I just had my antennas up always about, well, are there places, spaces, products, or things that are either exceptionally easy for you to use, or are they hard for you to use, and do you think because of your gender, age, or body size? Anyway, this particular issue came out from a lot of people, and so what I, what I did was then I read up on those statistics to see, okay, how widespread is this problem? Is it just you, or how many people have this happen, and what are the consequences of these kind of problems? And so I was able to read national statistics and and what uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission is doing about some of these things. Anyway, it's been very interesting. So child-proof jars are another thing that are very hard. Child-proof often means adult-proof, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> so we have a hard time opening these things. And the design of these faulty packaging for children's toys, for play equipment, have often led to widespread product recalls that have ultimately improved designs. But for the family and the friends who've been affected, it's, it can be very, very much too late. So sometimes it's the packaging, sometimes the toys themselves have been problematic. So I write about this as well. I write about child safety seats in the book as well, because hmm. one of the problems that's occurred there is the way that they're tested or the way at least that they, I knew that they were being tested as I was writing the book, they weren't subject to the same rigorous tests that the adults were going through. And so basically the problem is that the, the testing is not as rigorous for the child safety seats as it should be. And so people buy them, but they're often unaware of the fact that they may not be as safe as they, they should be. There have been recalls on furniture designs. So, for example, some of the IKEA furniture has been recalled because kids have climbed up on them and they've yanked them over and then they've fallen over and gotten injured by them. TVs, you know, large, the big wide screen TVs that so many of us have now, if they are not mounted in some way or protected to not fall over, they have fallen over and injured kids. So, so these biases that we see that are hidden gender, age, and body biases, they range from being, you know, mildly annoying, drive you up the wall, points of pain, to sometimes being really sources of injury and and they can kill people too. So it's there's a whole range of of what these problems can be and they're very serious. Catherine, what's your focus now? Uh, a few things. One of them definitely is about uh, improving public restrooms. 
And again, it's something I've always had an interest in from age three when I traveled to Greece with my family, because I'm Greek background. I think I, I heard from my, my mother, my father, my uncle, and my sister, probably cousins too. I was a very fussy customer about using the restrooms there. So I think I just <laughs> refused to use some of them and they had to pick me up and go to other ones. I've always been conscious of restrooms. And then later on, many years later, I became very conscious of restrooms for other reasons. Uh, my late husband was a cancer patient for about seven and a half years. And the last year, the last, the last week of his life, he was in a wheelchair. He'd been pretty physically active guy. He was walking a lot. He was in good shape. And anyway, it's a long story that his illness involved for both of us. But the last week, and again, one week, he was in a wheelchair. And we went out places. Um, he was not bedridden. We were not stuck inside all the time. We went out. And when he needed to use the restroom, where did we go? What did we do? So right, right, right. I couldn't go into the men's room with him. I didn't want to go in there. And I could, and he was too weak to push himself. He did, was not an electric wheelchair or anything fancy like that. It was just the old-fashioned kind. So I couldn't go in the men's. I didn't feel right about taking him in the women's. There were no gender neutral ones to go to. And eventually I did take him into the women's and I just kept the door open and I warned people when they came in, I was ready to say, you know, I'm sorry, but this is what we have to do. But I realized that was just one week. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm going through this and he's going through this for one week. But there are people who have to deal with this every day of their lives. It's not just one week. And, and, and we don't do all fit into the box of being man, woman, boy, girl. There's a lot of people who are in between. There are a lot of reasons why we need to accompany people into the opposite gender uh, facility. And uh, anyway, that was one thing that got me quite, one personal experience that, that woke me up to it. At the same time, I will say, almost about the same time, and it was in the late 1990s, there was a case in San Diego of a young boy who had gone to use a public restroom at a facility in Oceanside, California, and it was on the beach. And it was a public restroom that was open to whoever wanted to go there in the middle of the day. His aunt took him to go to the bathroom. He was about eight years old. His name was Matthew Checky. And uh, she saw him go into the men's room. And uh, there were you know, multiple stalls, like there would have been for the women's room as well. He went in, and she saw a man go in a few, you know, a little bit after her nephew went in. And he saw the man go out, and then Matthew didn't come out. And she didn't know what happened to him. Uh -oh. And she waited. And anyway, to make a long story short, Matthew never came out of that restroom alive. The fellow who walked in and walked out had slit his throat from oh here to here. Oh, my God. That was the oh end of Matthew. Oh my and God. that example, it, would really, it really hit me. Uh, and I just thought, wait a minute. You should not have to risk your life or risk the life of a young person or an older person or anybody just to go to the bathroom. And so that was like a jolt, I'd say. Those two things that happened almost very, very much around the same time got me interested in getting involved in more in, in restrooms because they're places and spaces that we all need, that we all use, that are everywhere, and yet they don't meet our needs. And then I would say soon after that, I had the opportunity to travel in Asia. I traveled in Japan in the year 2004. I was there. And what do you see in Japan? You see public restrooms almost on every street corner. 
I'm exaggerating. They're not every street corner, but they're very plentiful. There's lots of them. You see a lot of younger people. You see a lot of kids going around by themselves. You see school children in their uniforms without parents going on the subway, commuting to school. You see a lot of older people, a lot of older women out by themselves. One of the reasons why people can circulate in the public environment, in the public realm of all ages, is because there are restroom facilities that are clean, that are safe, that are accessible and easy for them to use. And Japan is really a world leader in public restrooms. But anyway, uh, having traveled abroad and seen other countries that have done a very good job with public restrooms, and we in the United States have done a very poor job with public restrooms, I guess that's been something where I've been on a crusade to help improve the design of restrooms and help, help, um, what should I say, uh, cities and towns realize that these are not places that should be afterthoughts. They're a very important part of the public infrastructure. Yeah, these are not frivolous. This is not a frivolous issue. No, not at all. People laugh and joke about them, but when you have to go, you have to go, and it's not a laughing matter. And again, a lot of people have invisible disabilities that require them to use them right away. Anyone with small children knows that they don't often give a lot of warning when they have to go, and when they have to go, you better get there as fast as possible. So the fact that we do not have in the United States a very good infrastructure of high-quality, well-designed, clean, safe public restrooms is really a scandal. Again, I'll take this opportunity on your podcast to say that I think what we need is a new civilian conservation corps, just as we need the new Green New Deal. We need to improve our nation's infrastructure of public restrooms anywhere and everywhere. And we need to make them much more, much safer, much cleaner uh, and well-designed than they are today. And it's a symbol of our society that they're not out there and we can't find them. Right. And you just struck something with me when you said that, to just move away from that slightly and making buildings today much more user-friendly when it comes to the environment. Absolutely. Well, and I will say, too, that this era of COVID-19 that we're in now, I think, has made people so aware of how important their immediate surroundings are and the, the link with nature. So if you're in a building... Obviously, in your home, if you have the ability to open a window, how important that is. Some people live in apartments where they can't open their window or they're high up and they don't have that ability. But the ability to have fresh air and good ventilation is extremely important all the time, but especially now. A view of nature and bringing nature inside architecture whenever that's possible is something that we see in green design. Uh, And we try to make buildings, spaces, and places more connected to nature for people so that they are not in these artificial environments. And bringing in natural light is so important. So natural light is like a vitamin for people, and it can make people feel so much better and happier, and they can sleep better at night when they're actually exposed to a good deal of natural light in the day. It's such a no-brainer. Yeah. And and the same thing goes for outdoor spaces, like in New York City, having constructed the High Line, which is so user-friendly. Yes, 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 very much so. And you can see how successful these places become once they're out there. People, the public is craving for spaces and places where they get to enjoy nature and they get to enjoy, I've been there to that High Line. Beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, every block is different and every experience in it is different, but it becomes a memorable experience. You can also look at where do people take photos when they visit cities and they're likely to go to these places that give them a view of nature within the urban environment. It's so important. So they become new urban landmarks. Catherine, 
here's here's the bottom line. You are so important. This has been nothing short of absolutely fascinating. What I've learned has just been amazing. The world owes such a debt to Catherine Anthony. Forgive the deification, but it's incredibly legitimate. I really can't thank you enough for sharing your life and your work. I thank you very much, Sandy, for inviting me to be on your show and giving me a public voice. And and, and I hope that your listeners are inspired by some of what they've heard and that they have their antennas up to see how they're affected by designs that advantage them or disadvantage them in particular ways. Thank you so very much. I'd love to have you back. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.